Part nineteen of The Secret of Everyday Things by Jean Henri Fabre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter fifty four. Air. Pass your hand rapidly before your face. Do you not feel a breeze? Now, instead of your hand, use a good sized piece of cardboard. The breeze becomes stronger. Try to run while holding an open umbrella behind you. You run with much difficulty and seem to be dragging not a light umbrella, but a heavy load which opposes all its resistance to your progress, and soon your strength is exhausted. Whence comes that breeze, and what causes that resistance? It is the air that is answerable for both, the air in which we are all submerged like fishes in water. Is it not true that the hand, moved rapidly back and forth in the water, produces currents and eddies, with little waves that ruffle the surface and beat against the banks. Precisely the same thing happens when air takes the place of water. Agitated by hand or cardboard, it is displaced, set in motion, and made to beat in successive waves against everything it encounters. Hence the puff of air that cools the cheek when a fan is used. If you undertook to run in the water and at the same time to drag after you a towel or even a handkerchief arranged so as to form a wide-mouthed pocket secured by the four corners, do you not think you would experience a resistance difficult if not impossible to overcome? In similar manner, the fabric of the umbrella, arrested by the air, will not let you run fast. The more air you move, the more force you must exert. It is all simple enough. A wide piece of cardboard fans us much better than the hand alone. A large umbrella impedes our course far more than a small one. Have you ever noticed the reeds that grow in a running brook? They are kept in constant agitation. The dragonflies, or darning needles, with great gauze wings and long green or blue bodies, that alight for a moment's rest on the tips of these reeds, have difficulty in maintaining their balance on that unsteady perch. Why are those reeds in continual motion? Marie hastened to reply, The running water is striking against them all the time. Yes, that is plain. And the great trees, especially the tall poplars, that sway and bend in deep boughs, and then straighten themselves up, only to repeat the performance, what is it that moves them in that fashion? A giant's hand striving to uproot them would produce no such swaying to and fro, Obviously, it is the air in motion that causes the trees to move, just as the water in motion makes the reeds move. Wind is air in motion, and its force is sufficient to snap the poplar tree, rend branches from the oak, and even overthrow solid walls. Invisible though it is, therefore, air is a very real substance. It is tangible matter no less than the water of the brook, the flood of the mighty river, the billows of the ocean. So long as it remains at rest, we are unconscious of it, but let it be set in motion in great waves, we feel it as wind and are very sensible of its buffets. Without waiting for the next gale to convince us that air is matter, we can, with a little contrivance, examine at close quarters this substance that the hand cannot grasp or the eye see. Let us take a drinking glass and plunge it into the water. It fills of itself. Now that it is full, let us hold it in any position we wish, but without taking it from the water. Whether its mouth be upward or downward or sideways, the glass will remain full. As long as it is in the water, we cannot empty it, 
not even by turning it upside down and that is just what might have been expected for what disposition could we make of its contents when there is water on every side to take the place of that that might flow out so much then being understood what is the condition of a drinking-glass as we see it standing on the table among other preparations for dinner is it really empty as we say it is before filling it with water or wine does it contain nothing absolutely nothing if you insist that it is empty i shall proceed to show you that it is full full to the very brim but full of what full of air nothing but air being immersed in air the glass has filled itself with air without any help from us just as it would fill itself with water if it were plunged to the bottom of a well moreover it remains full in any position even upside down for if any of the contained air should escape the surrounding air would immediately take its place everything is ordered here just as we have seen in the case of a glass immersed in water accordingly when we say of a glass or of a carafe of a cask or a barrel of a jug or a pitcher or any vessel whatever that it is empty the current expression used by us is not in accord with the exact truth the vessel designated as empty is in reality full of air and remains full in whatever position it is placed returning now to the drinking glass let us plunge it into the water holding it in a vertical position but with the opening downward in vain do we push it deeper and deeper into the liquid as far as the arm can reach this time the glass does not fill with water being already filled with air as has just been explained it cannot be filled with anything else until that has been emptied out the air imprisoned in the glass with no other way of escape acts as an obstacle to the entrance of the water under this aspect then we see once more that air is real matter capable of resistance and not yielding its place so long as there is no way open for it to go elsewhere let us release the prisoner to do this we gently tip the glass sideways while still holding it immersed a diaphanous globule shoots up through the water and bursts on reaching the surface other globules follow and still others as we tip the glass more and more they look like crystal pearls of incomparable clearness these transparent globules these pearls that make the water seem to boil are nothing but air escaping from the glass in little spurts or bubbles and thus the air is rendered visible despite its ordinary invisibility we can distinguish it clearly from the water in the midst of which it makes its ascent we follow its exit from the glass and note its upward passage in the form of bubbles but once arrived at the surface and mixed with the outer air it escapes the keenest eyesight we have just taken considerable pains to prove the existence of a substance unseen by anybody is it then this substance that we call air something of importance assuredly it is air is of the very first importance since without it neither animal nor plant could exist to give you an idea of the immense part it plays would require too much science and too much time let us confine ourselves to a more cursory treatment of the subject when the fire burns low on the hearth and the glowing sticks of wood are turning dull emitting smoke without flame and threatening to cease burning altogether what do we do to revive the fire we take the bellows and supply a blast of air with each puff the dull coals turn brighter the fire regains its vigor and flames begin again to flicker 
if generously fed with air from the bellows, the fireplace once more resumes its radiance. If, on the other hand, we wish to prevent a too rapid consumption of fuel, we partly cover the firebrands with a shovelful of ashes. Under this cover, which tends to keep out the air, the fire dies down somewhat. Indeed, it would go out entirely if the layer of ashes were to cover it completely and thus wholly exclude the air. When, on a cold winter day, we gather around the glowing stove to warm our benumbed hands, we hear a subdued murmuring sound that tells us the fire is burning. We then say that the stove snores. This sound is caused by the inrush of air through the door of the ash pit and its assault upon the mass of glowing firebrands, the heat of which it helps to maintain. The more air admitted, the hotter the stove becomes. If we wish to moderate the heat, we have only to close the door of the ash pit. Thereupon, as air is then admitted only in small quantities through the joints and seams, the fire will slacken and the stove lose its red glow and turn black. The fire would die out entirely if no air whatever gained access to the mass of burning fuel. These examples make sufficiently clear to us that air is indispensable to all combustion. It revives a dying fire. It enters into the combustion of the fuel, producing in the process both heat and light. Without air, no fire on our hearths, for wood and coal and other fuel burn only with the help of air. Without air, no light at night in our homes, for the illuminating flame of the lamp, of the candle, and of various other contrivances for dispelling darkness, goes out as soon as the supply of air fails. Chapter 55. Air. Continued. Of all the blessings we enjoy, the first place should be given to health, which is constantly menaced by diverse perils, and these are all the more to be feared when they are unknown. Let us learn what these dangers are, and the means of avoiding them. Then we shall be able to preserve our health, so far as its preservation depends upon ourselves. Prominent among the needs to which we are subject stand the need of food, the need of drink, and the need of sleep. But there is still another before which hunger and thirst, however violent they may be, lose their importance, a need continually born anew and never satisfied, a need that knows no respite, and makes itself felt whether we wake or sleep, by day, by night, and all the time. It is the need of air. So necessary is air to the maintenance of life that it has not been left to us to control our use of it as we do in the case of food and drink. Unconsciously, and with no volition on our part, we admit the air to our lungs and allow it to play its wonderful part in our system. On air, more than on anything else, we live, our daily bread taking only second place. The need of food is felt only at comparatively long intervals. The need of air is felt uninterruptedly, ever imperious, ever inexorable. To convince yourself of this, try for a moment to suspend the admission of air to your lungs by closing the doors against it, the nose and the mouth. In a few seconds you will be forced to end the experiment. You will begin to stifle and will feel that death would surely follow if you persisted in your experiment. All animals, from the smallest to the largest, are in like case with ourselves. First and foremost they live on air. Not even do those that live in water, the fishes and other forms of aquatic life, make any exception to the rule. They cannot live except in water and containing a certain amount of air. There is a striking experiment in physics to illustrate this point. 
some small living creature a bird for example is put under a bell glass from which the air is being gradually exhausted by means of an air pump as the supply of air diminishes under the action of the pump the bird begins to totter struggles in an anguish painful to see and finally falls in the death agony unless air is quickly admitted once more to the bell glass the poor victim will be dead and nothing can restore it to life but if air is admitted in time it reanimates the bird again if a lighted taper instead of a live bird be placed under the bell glass the flame is extinguished as soon as the air is withdrawn the bird must have air if it is to live the taper if it is to burn what i am now going to tell you will explain briefly the reason for this necessity for air man and animals have a temperature suitable to them a degree of warmth resulting not from any outer circumstances but from the vital processes within clothing helps to retain this warmth helps to prevent its dissipation but does not supply it moreover this natural warmth is the same under a burning sun and amid the frosts of winter in the hottest climates and in the coldest finally it cannot be lessened without placing us in very serious danger in the case of man its measurement on the centigrade thermometer is thirty eight degrees how is it that this warmth of the body is kept always and everywhere the same and whence can it come if not from combustion as a matter of fact there is going on in us a continual combustion supplied with fuel in the form of food by our eating and furnished with the necessary oxygen from the air we breathe to live is to be burnt up in the strictest sense of the word and to breathe is to burn from time immemorial there has been in use in a figurative sense the expression the torch of life we now perceive that this figurative expression is in reality the literal expression of the truth air makes the torch burn and it also makes the animal burn it causes the torch to give out heat and light and it causes the animal to produce heat and motion without air the torch becomes extinct without air the animal dies in this respect the animal may be likened to a highly perfected machine set in motion by the heat from the furnace the animal eats and breathes in order to generate heat and motion receives its fuel in the form of food and burns it up in its body with the aid of air supplied by breathing we say that animals eat and breathe to generate heat and motion that is why the need of food is greater in winter than in summer the body cools off more rapidly in contact with the cold air outside thus making it necessary to burn more fuel in order to keep up the natural warmth a cold temperature therefore whets the appetite for food while the warm one tends to dull its edge the famishing stomachs of dwellers in the far north demand hearty food such as fat meat and bacon but the tribes of sahara are satisfied with a daily ration of a few dates and a small portion of flour kneaded in the palm of the hand anything that lessens the loss of heat lessens also the need of food sleep rest warm clothing all these serve to supplement the taking of nourishment and to conserve the natural heat of the body even in a certain sense taking the place of nourishment this truth finds expression in the common saying that he who sleeps dines the fuel burnt up in us by the air we breathe is furnished by the very substance of our bodies or more particularly by the blood into which the food we digest is transformed of a person who applies himself to his work with an excessive ardor we say that he burns the candle at both ends 
another popular phrase that could not be bettered in its agreement with what is most assuredly known concerning the vital processes. Not a movement is made by us, not a finger is lifted, without causing a consumption of fuel proportioned to the energy expended, and this fuel is furnished by the blood, which itself is maintained by the food we eat. Walking, running, working, putting forth effort, engaging in activity of any sort, all these do in a very real sense burn the bodily fuel just as a locomotive burns its coal in hauling after it the heavy burden of the long train of cars. Thus it is that exercise and hard work increase the need of fuel, whereas rest and idleness diminish this need. The coal in a furnace takes fire, becomes red-hot, and burns up, at the same time giving out heat. Soon there is nothing left of it but a quantity of ashes weighing much less than the coal consumed. What has become of the part represented by this difference in weight? I have already told you in my talk on combustion. It is no longer in the furnace in black lumps visible to the eye, but it is in the air in a form that the eye cannot see. Air, as chemistry tells us, is a mixture of two gases having very different properties, one from the other. These gases are oxygen, an active gas lending itself readily to combustion, and nitrogen, an inert gas with no tendency to combustion. In 100 liters of this atmospheric mixture, there are 21 liters of oxygen to 79 of nitrogen. Now, in burning, the carbon of coal unites with the oxygen of the air, the two forming a gaseous compound called carbonic acid gas, which becomes diffused in the atmosphere. The part of the coal that is not carbon remains in the furnace, being insoluble in the atmosphere, and constitutes the ashes. All the carbon, then, disappears, seeming to undergo annihilation because we no longer see it, just as we cease to see the lump of sugar dissolved in water. This dissolution in oxygen, with the generation of heat, is called combustion. The incessant combustion going on in our bodies at the expense of materials furnished by the blood is by no means comparable for violence with the combustion taking place in a furnace. It is a slow burning, somewhat like the spontaneous ignition of a damp haymow before it bursts into flame. It produces heat, but not enough to endanger the body, as it would be endangered by undue proximity to a glowing furnace. In passing through a furnace and maintaining the fire therein, air changes its nature. Its oxygen unites with carbon to form carbonic acid gas, which escapes through the chimney, while pure air is continually entering to take its place. Exactly the same process goes on in the combustion that keeps us alive. The lungs act as a pair of bellows, alternately filling themselves with air and emptying themselves. These alternating movements are known as inspiration and expiration. In the first, pure air is drawn in to burn up certain constituents of the blood and generate heat. In the second, the air, after performing its office, is expelled, not the same in substance as when it entered, but impregnated with carbon and unfit for breathing, like the air escaping through the chimney from the furnace. The nitrogen in the air undergoes no change, but carbonic acid gas takes the place of most of the oxygen. In short, the breath from our lungs is essentially the same as the breath from a furnace. Chapter 56. Impure Air air, on which our very existence from moment to moment depends, exposes us to serious dangers when it is vitiated with foreign emanations, 
with impurities, which, though perhaps harmless when inhaled in only a breath or two, are fraught with peril if their admission to the lungs continues. Breathing is never suspended, day or night, and anything that disturbs it, even but slightly, causes uneasiness at first, and then, before long, grave danger. We are careful to have our food clean. We ought to be still more careful to have our air pure, its part in the maintenance of life being more important than even that of food. All air injurious to health from any cause whatsoever is called impure air. This impurity may be brought about in various ways, especially by the mixture of air with other gases, some of them dangerous, merely in that they cannot take the place of oxygen in the combustion unceasingly going on on our bodies, others bringing peril with them in the form of poisons that infect the blood. Foremost among these latter is the carbonic oxide, or carbon monoxide, as it is also called, which all our devices for heating generate in greater or less quantity, and which is therefore a serious source of peril. This terrible gas is produced in our very homes." Carbon can burn with two different degrees of completeness. That is, it can combine with a single or double portion of oxygen. Completely consumed, it gives carbonic acid gas, the gas produced by our breathing. Half consumed, it gives carbonic oxide. Let us turn our attention to the flame of a lighted candle. Just at the base of the flame, we see a narrow band of beautiful blue. On the top of slowly burning coal, may be seen little tongues of flame having the same blue color. That is the distinctive sign of the gas we are considering. Those blue flames are produced by the complete combustion of carbon in the form of carbonic acid gas. But before this final process, the gas generated by the semi-combustion of carbon is as invisible and subtle as the air itself. Carbonic oxide is odorless, so that we remain unsuspicious of its presence to our great peril. Inhaled, even in very small quantity, it poisons the blood, causing at first a violent headache with general discomfort, then vertigo, nausea, extreme weakness, and finally there may be a loss of consciousness. However short the duration of this state, life is imperiled. In my talk on combustion I warned you against this terrible gas, pointing out what precautions should be taken in respect to heating apparatus, the braziers used in laundry work, and even our modest foot-stoves. All these, unless proper provision is made for the circulation of fresh air, expose us to serious danger. There is no need to dwell further on this subject. I have already said enough. Carbonic acid gas, which represents the final state in the combustion of carbon, is not a poison like carbonic oxide. Our lungs always contain some of it, since it is in every breath we exhale. But though it is not a poison, it is unbreathable, being by no means suitable for the oxygen it has replaced in the combustion of the air. Now, carbonic acid gas is produced in abundance all around us, in the first place, during every moment of our lives, by our own breathing, secondly, by the combustion that goes on in our heating appliances, thirdly, and less frequently, by fermentation. I shall not here take up again the subject of our ordinary means of heating and the dangers to our health that lurk therein and call for vigilant precautions on our part. It is a topic already sufficiently familiar to us. Let us say a few words about movable stoves. The ordinary stove, footnote, the European built-in stove of tile or brick is here meant, translator, end footnote, has its undeniable merits. 
it is the best heating apparatus in respect to facility of installation economy of fuel and conservation of heat but it is defective from the hygienic standpoint especially in a small room occupied by many persons it does not provide adequately for the renewal of the air which it is capable of poisoning with its carbonic oxide a form of stove that should be absolutely forbidden in our dwellings is the so-called american or movable stove which is furnished all ready to be set up and is installed perhaps first in one room and then in another without proper precautions as to its adaptability to the apartment to be heated by its mode of slow combustion it generates carbonic oxide in great quantities and this may escape into the room at night and bring death to the sleepers too many accidents have already demonstrated the peril lurking in this form of heater fermentation or the decomposition that goes on in the sweet juice of grapes in the process of turning to wine produces carbonic acid in abundance hence it would be foolhardy unless assured beforehand of finding adequate ventilation to make one's way into the vault or cellar where must is fermenting and it would be still more foolhardy to descend into a wine vat even after the wine itself has been drawn out carbonic acid gas may be there forming a layer or stratum of some depth since it naturally sinks to the bottom because of its being heavier than air hardly has the rash adventurer entered this layer entirely undetected by the eye when he falls unconscious as if struck by lightning succor in this conjuncture is fraught with danger and when it arrives it is often too late the lesson is plain the most elementary prudence calls for circumspection in entering any room or other enclosure where carbonic acid gas from fermenting wine may be present before entering there should always be a preliminary testing of the atmosphere a lighted paper attached to the end of a long pole should be introduced into the wine vat and into the remotest corners of the cellar if the paper burns as usual the atmosphere is free from danger if it burns dimly smokes or surest sign of all goes out altogether carbonic acid gas is certainly present until ventilation has removed the danger let no one venture where the paper refuses to burn similar precautions should be taken in the case of recently opened crypts deep excavations in abandoned quarries and unused wells their atmosphere often vitiated by carbonic acid gas should first be tested with a lighted paper after entering the lungs air gives up a part of its oxygen to the blood and receives in exchange an equal volume of carbonic acid gas produced by the combustion that takes place in the body hence the breath expelled from the lungs is less vivifying than normal air no argument is needed to prove that respiration cannot continue indefinitely in an atmosphere not subject to renewal the ordinary proportion twenty one percent of oxygen in the air is never completely exhausted but any considerable diminution with the accompanying substitution of carbonic acid gas is enough to render breathing difficult and before long dangerous placed under a bell glass with no provision for renewing the air any living creature will succumb in time its duration depending on the rate of respiration one word more in its passage through the lungs the breath becomes laden with noxious emanations the invisible refuse of the human organism in its unceasing process of destruction and reconstruction man's breath is pernicious to man air is vitiated by merely remaining in the lungs where it loses a part of its vivifying element 
For these reasons it is important that strict attention be paid to the renewal of the air in dwellings, especially in the rooms used for sleeping, these latter being usually small and almost always kept carefully closed for the sake of warmth and quiet. Alcoves and bed curtains protect us, so that we are shut in with a limited supply of air which all night long undergoes no renewal, whereas in the other rooms of the house there is during the day a constant circulation of air through the frequent opening of windows and doors. When we awake in the morning, the air about us cannot but be impure. Let us then open our bedroom windows as soon as possible and allow the pure outside air to flood the chamber and replace the unwholesome atmosphere formed during our sleep. Let us also admit the sunlight, another powerful vivifying agent, that it may penetrate with sanitary effect the depths of our alcoves and the darkness created by our drawn curtains. Under ordinary conditions air circulates about us in such abundance that we hardly have to pay any attention to its quantity. But this is not so in a closed room, a dormitory, for instance, where a number of persons pass the night. Then it becomes necessary to provide a sufficiency of air for each one breathing within this limited space. Now, there passes through the lungs of every one of us about 10,000 liters of air per day, or 450 per hour, which amounts to nearly four cubic meters for a night of eight hours. But since air is vitiated by respiration long before its oxygen is notably lessened in quantity, it is advisable to multiply this four by ten, at least, and to provide forty cubic meters of space for each person occupying a sleeping chamber in which the air, all night long, is not renewed. Indeed, if double this allowance is made, the demands of hygiene would be no more than satisfied. Eggs that are no longer fresh, and in which decomposition has begun, give out a noisome odor, known well enough as the smell of rotten eggs. They tarnish any silverware that comes in contact with food containing them. These two effects proceed from the same cause. Sulfurated hydrogen, a compound of sulfur and hydrogen. This gas is not only nauseating, it is also, a more serious matter, highly poisonous, being comparable with carbonic oxide in its harmful qualities. Whoever inhales it quickly succumbs. Now it so happens that sulfurated hydrogen is a constant product of the decomposition taking place in excrementious matter, so that care is necessary that dwellings, and especially sleeping rooms, be at a safe distance from all such sources of infection, and that any possible danger therefrom be counteracted by abundant ventilation. Nor is sulfurated hydrogen the only injurious product of decomposition. Everything that decays gives forth exhalations whether malodorous or not, that cannot but injure our health. Therefore let us put a safe distance between our dwelling-houses and our stables, hen-coops, rabbit-hutches, dung-heaps, and other similar menaces to human welfare. In the country there is shown a somewhat excessive scorn of these dangers, but this carelessness is usually counterbalanced by plenty of ventilation. Doors and windows imperfectly closed, badly fitting, gaping with cracks and often wide open, allow free access of air to every nook and corner. Nevertheless, every deposit of refuse too near a well threatens the health of the whole household using that well. End of Part 19